Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Let's spend a few minutes in the world of espionage or accused espionage. Paul Whelan, a former U.S. Marine in Moscow for a wedding, faces 20 years in prison after Russian authorities arrested him on espionage charges. A Russian news outlet claims Whelan was detained moments after he received a USB drive that contained the names of employees at a top-secret state organization. With me is Luke Harding. He writes about Russia and espionage for The Guardian. Thanks for joining me, Luke. Thanks, Jerome. Uh, what do you make of the latest development here, this Russian news outlet saying that Whelan got a USB drive in his hotel room and it contained these top secret names and they swept in and arrested him right afterwards? Does that sound plausible? Uh, it, it doesn't. It looks to me like a classic setup by the FSB. That That's the main domestic security agency headed uh, at one time by, by one Vladimir Putin. Um, and... They burst into his hotel room, allegedly caught him red-handed with his stick and carted him off to jail. Now, I, I think this is all um, very convenient. And uh, it's pretty clear to, to everybody looking from outside that essentially what is going on is that the, the Russian state is looking for leverage. So uh, at some point, sooner or later, they can try and swap uh, Paul Whelan for um, Maria Butina, who, who, of course pleaded guilty and was convicted in December of uh, acting as an unregistered foreign agent in America. So we're in a kind of almost a kind of high speed sort of hostage negotiation situation, which is all being done under the, the carapace of law and espionage and so on. Now, um, what do you make of Whelan's background? Because he doesn't seem to have the same value as Maria Butina. If you were trying to swap somebody for somebody else, would you um, would, he's he's kind of like a low grade asset for, or a high grade asset, isn't it? Is is that what people are saying? Well, I, I mean, I think uh, I think you have to understand that he would have been in uh, the kind of Russian system uh, as an American who uh, visited Moscow fairly frequently, who had a kind of social media profile there, who was someone who was kind of on on the grid. Uh, and actually, whether he's high profile or low profile, uh, I would say it's kind of largely American, uh, largely irrelevant. The fact is that he was a, he was an American citizen uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time, and um, he's now sitting in in the fort of a prison where uh, actually. I was interrogated myself when I was in, in Moscow for the Guardian as a correspondent back in 2007. And uh, it's, it's a very depressing place. Uh, there's a prison downstairs, uh, a series of sort of box-like interrogation suites upstairs. It, it's eerie. It's noiseless. There are cameras everywhere tracking all of your movements um, and a sort of open metal bar lift going into the kind of lower depths. It, it's a pretty chill and intimidating place and i think a sign of how important this case is for the kremlin uh and uh really a, a signal to to washington that look guys it's time to sit down here and and sort out some kind of trade why does his presence in the fortivo prison seem like um uh, something that is speaks to the importance to the kremlin why is that place important well it, it's traditionally where very high profile um prisoners have been kept um alexander solzhenitsyn writes about it in in the gulag archipelago the the the, the writer and, and and dissident and also uh, alexander litvinenko uh who was a, himself a former fsb officer who fell out with the system fell out with putin uh, when he was arrested was placed there now of course he escaped to the uk claimed asylum uh, and was famously poisoned in 2006 by 
to Kremlin assassins using a radioactive cup of tea. So it, it, it's, a, it's a place with a kind of dark storied um, history um, and it's got its own particular protocols. Um, when officers are marching a prisoner around uh, through a corridor, they, they, they clack on, on a special wooden device which sends a sound so that other officers with other prisoners can go into recesses so that two prisoners never see each other. Um, it, it's a place of total isolation. The conditions are better than most Russian jails. But, but there is no doubt that Paul Whelan is now essentially a political prisoner uh, and that his problems are not really about espionage. They are to do with international politics in the Butina case. Well, the Butina case doesn't seem like something that's going to be resolved soon. Is Lafortevo prison the kind of, are we going to see a long detention for Paul Whelan then? Well, I mean, it can go two ways. It's possible that he might be released on bail. Um, I think it's more likely that he will he will stay there um, and the, the pressure will mount um, on the US administration to do something. What, what I also think is kind of very striking is that, uh, unless I've missed it, there has been nothing from Donald Trump uh, on the case. No tweet, no demand that he be freed, no rebuke of Vladimir Putin's security services for, for seizing an innocent man. Um, over the kind of holiday period. Um, I, I think that is I- itself quite curious. Whelan, so far as we know, is, is a Trump supporter who, who, who welcomed his, his victory in, in 2016. He, he's a Marine. He's served in Iraq. Um, he's a patriot. Uh, I think the silence from, from, from Donald Trump tells its own story. What did you make by the visit by the U.S. ambassador to Russia to visit Whelan in prison on Wednesday? Some people... Uh, described it as a, a mistake that he should have sent someone lower down and um, shouldn't have visited himself. Well, I, I mean, I think I would agree with that because um, now the ambassador has been in. And by the way, it's very hard to 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 go into Lafortera. I, I went in with a lawyer. I had to hand over my, my passport, my mobile phone. Um, the, there's very kind of high security there. The fact that the ambassador has actually been into this kind of notorious prison uh, means that, that really this case is is being catapulted beyond the consular uh, up into a sort of government-to-government um, level. Uh, and of course, um, the Kremlin can kind of sort of can wait now and, and, and see what Washington does. And the other thing to bear in mind is that is that Putin has got form of taking what you might call hostages. You'll remember in November that there were about 20 Ukrainian sailors who, who were detained by the Russians going through the Kerch Strait quite legally in international waters. They are now um, in detention. There are Ukrainian film directors who've who were arrested in in Crimea in 2014 and have been jailed. Uh, There are quite a lot of what you might call kind of political prisoners. And I think that Paul Whelan uh, has suddenly and inadvertently just become the most famous of them. It sounds like um, he, why why, why would you take a prisoner and not want to swap them? Why do you hold on to uh, Ukrainian soldiers for months? Uh, It's, it seems like a pointless kind of strategy. Well, if you look at um, uh, Putin and, and Ukraine, the Kremlin's uh, strategy in, in an area it regards as it's kind of near abroad. After all, um, Ukraine used to be part of the kind of Soviet imperium. Um, it, it's, it's, it's all about <clears throat> stoking a conflict up or, or, or damping it down, depending on your strategic 
need. Uh, in other words, at some point, Putin could release these these sailors, um, or alternatively, he could kind of take more prisoners um, in the same way that the, that the war that's been going on or the conflict that's been going on on and off for four years in eastern Ukraine um, has quiet moments and then kind of very violent moments in which people are killed, including civilians. Um, this is a kind of old Kremlin um, tactic. Um, it's got everything to do with realpolitik, and it's got nothing to do with with the rule of law and and uh, international norms and conventions. Um, the um, Soviet Union in its day uh, did it, it. It seemed to run a different kind of ship when it came to these kind of detentions and swaps. It all seemed a little neater and more well thought out. This seems just. Sloppy. Does it? Does it seem just kind of overly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you're, you're right, Jerome. But in a, in, in a way, the kind of <clears throat> that that you, you might argue that the kind of Russian state is 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 a sloppier and and kind of de ideological version of the of the Soviet Union, um, where uh, things have fallen down. The spies are not so good. Science is degraded. Parliament is something of a joke and, and a kind of uh, a sort of rubber kind of stamp for for whatever. Putin wants, and certainly we've seen a decline. You might argue, in 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 Russian espionage. I mean, what one story that that has has gripped my country, kind of England, in the last few months has been the uh, attempted assassination of this um, Russian. Uh, former spy called Sergei Skripal in, in Salisbury in England in March. Two, two assassins tried to kill him with this lethal nerve agent, Novichok. And, of course, firstly, they didn't succeed. But secondly, they were caught on CCTV and subsequently um, I, I identified. Um, and so I, I've talked to a lot of experts and, and, and actually former detect- defectors over the past few months. And, and they say, yeah, Russian spy agencies are, are not as good as they were um the, the the level generally is 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 pretty low but they have a method and and of course they can they can fall on people who are not 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 expecting it and i i, I feel actually quite a lot of sympathy for paul william because uh, I, i'm sure um that uh, the allegations against him are unfounded but but he is now in a in a very very difficult situation this is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Luke Harding of The Guardian about Paul Whelan, the U.S. Marine charged with espionage in Moscow. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to hear about the Yemeni archipelago Socotra. It's known as the Galapagos of the Arabian Sea. Stay with us. Um, you mentioned the Sergei Skripal uh, incident uh, in Great Britain and uh, the people who um, kind of ran down the identities of his uh, attackers was Bellingcat. That was, an, it's an organization that um, was is independent. It is not the 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 British Secret Service or anything. They're they're just analysts who go out there and figure out from what's on the internet what's going on. And they ran down these these Russian agents. Um, this is um, it, does this speak to the way that the spy business is changing and that really analytics and um, uh, data are becoming a bigger factor than these kind of human hostage situations or, or human beings on the ground? I, I, yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point. Be- Bellingcat has been running for a few years. Um, the guy in charge is called Elliot Higgins, who started off by identifying weapons in Syria and looking at online videos, uh, and basically what he is, has done has has transformed all of the information that you can get from from 
uh, from the internet, from open sources, from videos, from geolocation into a, a kind of very, very powerful research tool to the point where I, I would argue that actually probably Bellingcatter uh, uh, almost as effective, maybe even more effective than the CIA. Um, and certainly what they did through using open source material and, and actually some sort of, sort of internal sources in Russia was identify these two assassins as as Chapiga and Mishkin, two career officers with the GRU, that's kind of Russian um, military intelligence. And they use things like uh, databases of car registrations uh, in, in Moscow, telephone books, unpaid fines. Um, and they really did a kind of tremendous job. And I, I think what's interesting is that, that we see these assassinations, which are sort of 20th century plots or, or what happened with Paul Whelan, which is sort of grabbing someone in a Moscow hotel room. And it's all a bit old school. The problem is now in, in an age uh, where everyone has a smartphone, where, where there are numerous videos, it, it, it becomes a lot harder to to lie about things. Sure, you, you can try and states continue to lie. But but actually, um, it, it's much easier for um, for sort of amateurs, for for kind of committed uh, sort of professional investigators to to find out the truth. If you were an intelligence agency, would you be arguing for more um, boots on the ground kind of intelligence, or would you be arguing for more data analysts? Because I noticed the the director of the CIA recently got up and has been arguing for more boots on the ground. Well, again, that's that that's a very good question. I mean, what, what I spent four years in Moscow as as the Guardian's reporter there, um, and I talked to a range of people from from civil society activists to to sort of uh, to, to politicians um, to, to experts. Um, and then in 2010, you'll remember that there was a huge leak of U.S. State Department cables, uh, and I'd always somehow assumed that the, the the State Department, the CIA, had a network of super secret sources and and knew precisely what was going on inside the Kremlin. And I I was surprised to discover they were talking to the same people I was, uh, and th- their, their analysis was was absolutely sound. But um, I think, having talked to national security uh, sources, that that that, 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 that there isn't much. Uh, there isn't a sort of much of a kind of um, secret intelligence which is flowing from inside the Kremlin into to America. So I think data analytics are great, open source stuff is great, but also kind of old fashioned James Bond style assets and agents um, is is clearly very important as well. But but I have to say that I don't think Paul Whelan uh, is is James Bond, and I I I, I don't think he was engaged in spying when he was in Moscow. All right. Uh, uh, I mean, he is um, head of global security for a auto parts uh, agency. That did not strike me as the best cover. Not the best cover. <clears throat> he he was dishonorably discharged uh, as a Marine. He's He's got a website now taken down, which... Uh, is, is his sort of private ramblings uh, about all manner of things, including his dog Nugget. Um, th- th- this is not James Bond. Luke Harding writes about Russia and espionage for The Guardian. Thanks for joining me and talking about Paul Whelan, the former U.S. Marine, in Moscow for a wedding. He's facing 20 years in prison after Russian authorities have uh, accused him of espionage. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll learn a few things about Socotra, the Galapagos of the Arabian Sea. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The war in Yemen has created the world's worst humanitarian crisis. 75% of the population needs emergency assistance. News coverage regularly features starving children. But Yemen is more than just a perpetual crisis. It, a full picture of Yemen includes its rich history, beautiful locales that made it a popular tourist destination at one time. It's also a place with amazing biodiversity. We're going to talk about Yemen's archipelago, Socotra. It's often compared to the Galapagos for the many plants and animals that exist only there. We're going to find a few things out about Socotra and hear about uh, the, how the war is affecting this UNESCO World Heritage Site. With me is Kay Van Dam. He's a researcher for the Biodiversity Climate Research Center at the Senckenberg Research Institute and Natural History Museum in Frankfurt, Germany. Thanks for joining us, Kay Van Dam. Thank you, Jerome. Um, you were uh, you started visiting in nineteen or ninety nine Socotra. Um, why did you start going there? What, what's uh, what was there? Well, at the time, I was still a, a student, and I had a, a, a passion and an interest in in biodiversity in general. I still have this, um, and I had a chance to visit this as part of a, a general biodiversity survey in the late nineties, as part of a United Nations uh, project and uh, as a young student I went there and I was completely uh, impressed by the by the uh, biodiversity and by the kindness of the people as well and uh, since then I've just been very passionate about this place and it's, yeah. explain a little about the what is there when it comes to biodiversity because I've been reading some of the statistics and they're they're really impressive yeah, if we compare Socotra to other um, islands in the, for example, in the Indian Ocean or just in general uh, continental islands, then Socotra is quite high up in in uh, terms of uh, number of endemic species. So when we talk about endemic species, these are animals and plants, for example, that do not occur anywhere else in the world except for on this particular spot. So in this case, they would be endemic to Socotra. Of course, for some of these species, it might mean that they have not been found uh, in nearby regions, but for other very conspicuous species, it is clear that they only occur there. And Socotra has many of these endemics. It has at least 10 uh, and now possibly 12 um, endemic bird species. It has more than 800 endemic plant species, and it has hundreds of endemic uh, invertebrate species on on the land, and so when biologists see a place with a lot of endemics, they also know that these are unique species. It's unique biodiversity, unique um, examples of evolution that have that do not occur anywhere else in the world, and it means they are also uh, have been in isolation for a long time, and they're also vulnerable to to change. When I see pictures of Socotra, it looks uh, dry, but there are underground rivers and caves which seem to have uh, or would be responsible for a big chunk of this biodiversity what 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 happens there so socotra a large part of the socotra surface at least uh, 60% of it is karstic limestone which means that this is uh, it's all limestone that's been deposited and, and highly weathered um, and where water actually trickles through and then accumulates underground. And then when it hits the bedrock, which is mainly granite, it just goes either emerges as a river or under, under uh, in, into the sea. So 
in those caves, these huge limestone caves that have formed as as a result of weathering and um, just just uh, chemical processes over time, you get species that are there and that no one has ever seen before, which have evolved in these caves and are completely adapted to life without light. So they've lost pigmentation, for example, or they lost their eyes, and they are um, sometimes just specific to a certain cave system, not only endemic then to Socotra, but endemic to a region on Socotra or to a specific cave, or at least we haven't found them anywhere else yet. And very often they have connections to, for example, uh, to the um, South Arabian mainland, where there are similar species, or to the, the, the um, north northeastern coast of Africa, where there are also similar species, which actually shows the ancient connections of Socotra to the mainland. It sounds incredible, and I don't know, how do you go down into something like that? Do people regularly go there? Is there is it protected? Can you go into caves and rivers by yourself? How does that work? Well, these cave systems, um, most of them are inaccessible for people who are not professionally trained. So when we used to go um, in uh, cave expeditions, this was with a, pro- a professional seamospeleologist, uh, and I was the only biologist in the team, so I was um, very grateful for the expertise of this paleological team to actually look at the animals that were in, inside the caves while they were mapping and and, uh, and exploring. Uh, but most of them, you need special equipment. Uh, there's just a few caves that you can access just um, by walking into them and, 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 uh, and looking inside, but those have those don't have these big water reservoirs. Um, and as to protection, Socotra is, uh, um, I mean, at least 70% of the um, of the uh, terrestrial surface is uh, core zone in the in UNESCO uh, by UNESCO World Heritage. The whole uh, the whole archipelago is UNESCO World Heritage uh, site since 2008, so they are all under protection. And there's other local protection laws, which is Socotra Conservation Zoning Plan since 2000, which under which protection these uh, these caves and everything that is uh, under these areas fall. Um, I did want to mention something that people might know about Socotra is the dragon's blood tree, which is a, a huge feature of the of the place. And there are these trees that they kind of look like upside-down umbrellas when your umbrella gets turned around. It's it's a straight stalk up and a, and a blossom out. Um, tell me something about the trees and, and what they're used for. So these trees are, are well, they are fascinating trees, and these uh, the dragon blood trees are, as you say, they look like um, uh, upturned umbrellas, and that's a special shape to actually uh, capture as much moist as possible from the semi-arid environment. And um, they are from a special group of ancient um, trees that have uh, still some species in Africa and, and in, in Arabia, and uh, you would, and some some of these species, for example, you would know the Dracaena. There's a, there's also a dragon blood tree in the Canary Islands, for example. And these all come from an original stock of these dragon trees that used to be a very common um, a common species in uh, in uh, the Palearctic in the uh, in tertiary times. So they are actually really a relic species of which only a few a few survive. And the reason they are called dragon blood trees is they have this special resin that uh, you can extract by scratching into the tree which local people use and which has uh, 
a wide a wide um, a wide series of uses that local local people have uh, have been using it for for a very long time. And these uh, also the dragon the red resin of the dragon blood tree has been exported in ancient times, uh, and it's been quite famous at some points for even using as uh, dyes and and blood uh, the, the, to use the color of blood, for example, in some uh, in some. Uh, paintings and some people say, but this has never been completely confirmed, that the original Stradivarius violins were impregnated with the red resin of the dragon blood tree from Sukhotra. It's one of these. Amazing. Uh, I'm talking with Kay Van Dam. He's a researcher on biodiversity, and he's Iodiv- uh, an honorary chair of Friends of Socotra. has been visiting uh, the archipelago in Yemen since 1999. I wanted to say something. You mentioned that there's great people on Socotra, and I understand they have their own language, and Socotra is you know, a little bit far offshore from Yemen. It doesn't, I imagine it doesn't seem, I mean, it seems a lot like Yemen, and then it doesn't seem like Yemen. How does, how does it feel there for people? Well, I, I, of course, I'm not a Socotri, so I cannot speak on, on their behalf, of course, but um, the Socotri themselves are, as you, as you mentioned, they have a, a unique language, which is a, uh, an, ancient, an ancient language, which does not exist, for example, in written form uh, so far, and it's a, it's a very uh, a very special language. And they they communicate, although as with all other uh, languages that are only very locally used, also this language is like nature is under under threat of disappearing or being absorbed by other languages, or or that people lose the, the vocabulary in these languages. So this is. This happens, of course, everywhere in the world, and this is the same as with biodiversity. So there's also a cultural challenge to um, to conservation. Um, but for the people there, I I mean, Socotra is an island, and living on an island is always very different to living on the mainland. You you have uh, it's completely different climate. There's different uh, different challenges, uh, which are strongly climatic driven. You, there's there's monsoons. There is um, the, the, the whole uh, seasonal system is is quite strong, and um, people live either of mainly originally of fisheries and of uh, um, herding. So they are these are the these are the original things that uh, Socotra people actually do. And so I would I mean to me I would imagine when I'm on Socotra I have a completely different feeling as being in mainland Arabia because first of all because of the biodiversity and second of all because you have you are completely surrounded by the sea. And the cultural, the culture is quite specific and unique. Um, yeah. Well, you know, how has the recent conflict in Yemen changed things for people in Socotra? I under, you haven't been there since 2014, I understand, and uh, it's hard to get there, and uh, people just don't go there now. It seems. Well, for me, from from the point of a biologist and and uh, talking about biodiversity and conservation um, if I look at it from that point of view then um, there are some impacts, indirect impacts and there are some I've, I've written some papers about this already several years ago even before the, the conflict happened um, to actually pinpoint that there are possibilities that whatever actually happens on the mainland trickles, trickles through to the, to the island in some way and could have an effect on Biodiversity, which means long-term effect on food security of the local people. Um, one of these effects that we've seen in the past, for example, that is re- can be recurrent also now, 
is a, is a decrease in, um, in connectivity of the island. This is one. Although connectivity can also bring risks. For example, um, unsustainable tourism could also bring uh, impacts, of course. But there is also a decrease of, um, of connection of goods, for example. We've seen in the past that, uh, for example, a, a, a shortage of um, fuel, um, fuel for cooking and cooking gas, that this could actually uh, result in people turning to uh, wood as, as a fuel source again, and that uh, by this way you actually increase uh, cutting uh, local uh, local species that have an effect and have difficulties with uh, restoring naturally because of the drought on one hand and um, so and re- uh, lack of regeneration. So there are some indirect impacts that can can affect uh, Socotra. Another another thing is, I was talking about increased uh, connectivity. Um, this means tourism, and of course, this is normal in. In, in this area that at this point tourism has now decreased uh, since uh, 2014 uh, or since 2015 uh, better it, it has completely decreased whereas before Socotra had quite a regular uh, tourism uh, income which means also livelihoods uh, change again from for example promoting ecotourism locally then and, and away from ecotourism that people turn again again to natural resources on an island natural resources are limited so it means an impact, a long-term impact increased by some climatic impact like cyclones can actually have an effect afterwards for these uh, ecosystems to uh, to uh, be resilient. Who calls the shots politically in Socotra right now? I've, I've been, you know, there's so many people fighting in Yemen and one of them is the United Arab Emirates and I was reading some things in the Independent about how the United Emirates Arab Emirates calls the shots now in Socotra, and it's more connected to them than Yemen. Well, to be honest, I, I actually don't know. This is something, um, this, I mean, as a researcher, I connect mainly to the to other researchers and to people that are directly uh, on the ground and, and working there. And for us, it does not change so much. Um, so... I mean, the, 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 the research continues and, and the, the, um, the biodiversity um, conservation activities continue. And this is a main, a main focus. And um, it doesn't, I mean, from that point of view for, for nature conservation, it doesn't really matter who is actually calling the shots. It mostly, what mainly matters is whether whoever is calling the shots, whether they are interested in, in, in promoting this side of, of the Arabian Peninsula and, and of Socotra as the largest island of the Arabian Peninsula because uh, this is something for the long term that that, uh, that is very important for the future of the people and I think for the whole for the whole region actually. Uh, who, is, who are the people who are really concerned about the future of Socotra? Is it, do UN officials, do the UNESCO people who created the World Heritage Site, do they weigh in? Do they have any influence on um, on on the future of the island? Well, I can say as having been uh, chair of Friends of Socotra for 10 years that there's a large community of uh, researchers um, who have a, a genuine concern for the for the uh, for the nature and cultural conservation of Socotra. So this is for the na- natural and cultural heritage, let's say, of Socotra. 
so they, they, there is a general concern by scientists and by people who, who have an interest in, in, um, in culture and nature and Socotra of, of seeing, seeing potential decline in the future. Um, but this is for all areas with, with high biodiversity or high cultural values, it's the same anywhere in the world. There's, there has to be a, a community that has expresses and it has some concern in order for for um, decision makers to also realize that they, that these values are high and, and, and important for this uh, for this area. Um, and I and for for the UNESCO World Heritage Site, it's been it's been listed since 2008, and UNESCO follows this up uh, in regular um, evaluations to see whether. The challenges that Socotra faces, uh, the natural challenges that the biodiversity face, faces, sorry, um, are are being um, handled and being uh, taken into concern in, in in the in the local policies and whether there are any conservation actions on the ground. Kay Van Dam is a researcher for the Biodiversity and Climate Research Center at the Senckenberg Research Institute and Natural History Museum in Frankfurt, Germany. He's honorary, honorary chair of Friends of Socotra and has been visiting the archipelago and off the coast of Yemen since 1999. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about this amazing place. I hope people uh, check out on the internet and look it up, uh, take a look at some of the pictures. They're fantastic. Thanks a lot for joining me, Kay Van Dam. Thank you very much, Jerome. Thank you very much, and have a good evening. Bye. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the myth of legal immigration. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the things that President Trump says frequently is that he wants legal immigration. In fact, he said it just yesterday while pontificating at a meeting of cabinet officials. We want people coming into our country. We need people to come into our country, but they have to do it through the system. They have to do it legally. And we want people coming that can help our country. We're going to spend a few minutes talking about what legal immigration means in the U.S. David Beer is a immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and he's done a lot of work on the issue. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me on. Uh, what does legal immigration mean to you when you hear the president say that? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about people who can come through a legal process uh, to enter the United States. And so when you're looking at the United States, we allow about 1 million people to receive legal permanent residency in the United States um, every year. And uh, if you look at that as a share of our population, that's about a third of a percent of the increase in our population is coming from uh, immigrants. All right. So that seems really low. Is that low compared to other countries? Is that um, normal? Oh, compared, compared to other wealthy countries, the United States rates 
uh, ranks in the bottom third when you look at controlling for population, how much do we allow our population to increase through immigration. And so uh, most other uh, major developed countries allow much higher levels of uh, annual immigration. Uh, Germany, you know, you're talking about three or four times as many new permanent residents entering Germany. Australia, it's, it's two and a half times. Canada, it's more than double. Um, so most other countries uh, that have developed economies that are wealthy countries that immigrants want to move to, they're allowing a, a much higher rate of immigration, uh, population growth through immigration than the United States is right now. Now, what is happening with uh, the Trump administration's own record on this? I know you've been doing some research with uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Uh, is the Trump administration uh, trying to up the numbers of legal immigrants coming to this country? Oh, absolutely not. You know, the position of the administration is that we should uh, essentially cut legal immigration by 50%. And if you look at all the regulatory changes that they're uh, imposing, uh, it's resulting in uh, significant declines in the number of people who are able to immigrate or travel to the United States. If you look at uh, the denial rates for immigration applications, you know, they're at near record highs. Uh, they've increased 37% since the end of the Obama administration. So they're denying uh, far more people their uh, various immigration applications. And so um, their, their effort is overwhelmingly to restrict uh, legal access and legal um, immigration to the United States. And uh, there's no effort on the other side to expand any category of immigration. One of the things the Trump administration usually talks about is getting more well-trained workers and not uh, bringing in immigrants that don't have skills. Is, that, is there any sign that the downturn in the immigration numbers is just reflecting a reconnoitering of uh, things that, where we're going to gear up and bring in more uh, immigrants with uh, big education backgrounds? Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, if you look at high-skilled immigration categories, uh, you know, they've taken a hit um, as well. Um, you know, so there's no sign that, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, just promoting higher-skilled immigration. You know, this is across the board. Um, we're seeing declines in virtually every category of uh, immigration benefits. So, um, the denials are across the board, and, and I don't see any effort to move to a more uh, high-skilled system. They just want fewer people coming into the country from abroad. I'm talking with David Beer. He's an immigration policy analyst with the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. We're talking about the idea of legal immigration in the United States. How does the presidency get so much latitude when it comes to um, who comes in this country. It seems like uh, Congress sets immigration policy, but the president has so much latitude. Well, certainly this is something that was really imposed. This entire system of immigration that we have uh, is a derivative of the 1920s, where uh, essentially you had uh, nationalists and nativists, you know, people who are openly hostile to immigrants, 
uh, controlling both houses of Congress and the presidency, and they wrote these immigration rules to provide the greatest possible latitude to keep people out of the country, um, not to allow them to stay or to have legal status here. And so uh, these rules have built up over a long period of time that just say, you know, if the administration wants to keep people out or deport them, we're going to have very few restrictions, we're going to have very little oversight, and we're going to make that that process very easy, well as allowing people in legally, we're going to make that very onerous and, and very restrictive and very difficult. And so I would argue that the system we have right now is one designed by restrictionists and not by people who uh, you know, want to promote a legal immigration process. I, how does this compare with, uh, I mean, most countries these days seem to not want to, people to immigrate legally or illegally. Uh, you see, you know, countries like Japan, Australia, uh, all the countries that are in Central Europe, they, they, they seem angry about uh, immigration. Is this just the uh, kind of a, a new norm that there's going to be hostility towards uh, immigration? Oh, absolutely not. I think, honestly, this is, you know, something that is driving a subset of, uh, you know, the president's base. And certainly many of his advisors are very passionate about this issue. But the American public generally um, are, they've never been more positive toward immigration than they were in 2018. This is according to long-term Gallup polls. Uh, looking at, uh, you know, the question of whether you want to see immigration levels increase, decrease, or remain the same. The portion saying they should be increased or remain the same is now almost 70% of the public, and the side saying we should restrict um, has never been as low as it was in 2018. And so, um, you know, certainly the American public is not on board with the effort to uh, reduced numbers of immigrants. Uh, there, you know, as I said, you know, really the polls indicate the opposite. If you had some advice for Congress, uh, what would it be? How could they take control of our immigration policy? Well, really, they need to look at first of all uh, taking away all the discretion that have been given to the administration to just exclude people based on a whim, impose new restrictions whenever they feel like it. And that's really what the powers that the that the presidency should not have, and certainly not this president um, who is using them in unprecedented ways. But the second thing you have to really look at is the legal immigration side is very restrictive. The um, number of green cards that are issued hasn't changed uh, when you're talking about employer-sponsored immigration or the family-sponsored categories with quotas, they haven't changed since 1992 when the last update came into effect. And so, um, you know, that's really part of the problem is we're, we're dealing with an antiquated system. Back in 1990, when that law was passed by Congress, the, the population of the United States was 30% smaller than it is today. The economy was half the size, and yet we've seen no updates in the numbers um, that we're allowing in. And so that's really the problem uh, is, you know, an antiquated system that doesn't re reflect the changes in the country.
Uh, It's always seemed kind of – we've been talking mostly about um, workers, but refugees are some – are people that have come into the country. Uh, Traditionally, the U.S. has resettled refugees. The president is uh, drastically reducing that number. Uh, What do you make of what's going on there? Well, I certainly think that, you know, this uh, is part of the administration's effort to restrict immigration. And and the reason why the numbers have gone down so dramatically is because the president essentially has total power over the refugee program. He could shut it down completely. I mean, he's he's gutted it as much as any president has ever done. Um, But again, this is an area where he has total discretion. And that's part of the problem. You know, you need to have a system that's actually being driven by the ground up where um, on the family sponsored side, at least you have U.S. citizens and U.S. residents um, driving the inflow into that system. So if I'm sponsoring a spouse or a child to come to the United States, I'm actually participating in that process. With the refugee program, the government has total control. They pick the people that they want to let in, and the American public has no say or control. Whereas in Canada, they actually have an interesting private sponsorship system where churches and communities and groups and individuals can sponsor refugees directly and allow them to come in um, through that means. And so taking some of that power away from the president and giving it to private citizens, I think, would be a step forward for the refugee program. I'm talking with David Beer from the Cato Institute, and we're talking about legal immigration and what that means in this country. Uh, Was it ever easy to legally immigrate here? I mean, we all got here somehow, and uh, I mentioned the laws uh, before the 20s were, were, were somehow better. Well, you have to, uh, you know, if you go back and you look at, again, the share of the population that was increasing through immigration, in the early 20th century and the late 19th century, you had many years that were five, six times uh, the level or rate of immigration uh, that we saw in 2017 and 2018. And so, yes, we were far more open uh, during that period of time. In fact, you know, just the average uh, legal immigration over the course of uh, the entire history of the United States is far greater uh, on average than what we allowed in 2017 and 2018. So even if we were re- returned to just the average, you're talking about a 30% increase in legal immigration um, as a share of the U.S. population. And so, um, yes, it was far easier back then. We didn't have the quota system that came into place in the 1920s, where we just said, we're, we're just going to cap this, and you know anyone who's above the cap can't come. Do you have a response when you hear people say, well, sure, my ancestors were immigrants, but we came here the right way. We did it uh, legally. Well, uh, many of them didn't. You know, look, there was an amnesty in the 1920s. You had more than 400,000 people who immigrated illegally, even without the quotas. They immigrated illegally um, for various reasons, either because they were, um, you know, criminals or they couldn't pay the fee to come in that was in place at the time or they were illiterate. So there were different restrictions. Chinese people were, were, of course, banned um, from entering the United States. And so you had various categories of people who had no ability to, to immigrate even back then, and they immigrated illegally. So many people are, today don't even realize that they are descendants 
of illegal immigrants. But uh, the reason why it w- people largely did immigrate legally back then is because it was such an open system. People today don't understand that back then you didn't have to fit into these various narrow categories that we have today or have you know these immigration quotas where the limits are so low that people have to wait for decades and so the system back then is nothing like the system today if we went back to that system everyone virtually everyone would be immigrating legally to this country and we wouldn't have this illegal immigration problem that we have today do you have a gut Im- gut feeling about how immigration is going to play as a campaign issue in the next presidential election? Clearly, the president is going to uh, keep grinding it. Uh, does somebody have a retort to that that's effective? I think the retort is uh, your obsession is not shared by the American people. Um, the American people don't want to see legal immigration restricted like the president does. They're not uh, obsessed with illegal immigrants in the country. They don't think they're running around committing crimes and uh, wreaking havoc on the country the way the president portrays them. And so uh, I think the response is really just to divert and say, uh, we're going to focus on our issues that the American people care about. Um, you, you know, you can focus on your obsession. Uh, we want to fix the legal system. We want to fix immigration, but uh, we're not, uh, you know, going to bite, you know, take the take the bait on this. David Beer is an immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Thanks for joining us and talking about legal immigration to the U.S. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow, I hope you can join us for Worldview. Milo Stalik talks with the director of a groundbreaking Lebanese film that's coming out tomorrow. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.